The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Hello. Hello. And welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, bringing you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. I'm Ben, a member of the editorial team here at the IAI. And I'm Ricky, head of the editorial team here at the IAI. So, Ricky, today we've got truth, delusion and psychedelic reality. This is a debate that featured King's College London psychiatrist James Rucker, philosopher Julian Bergini and creative director and artist Eileen Hall. This debate took place in the 2022 edition of How the Light Gets In Festival in London, the philosophy festival produced by the team here at the IAI. So tell us a bit about this debate, Ricky. Well, this one asked whether psychedelic experiences might offer us a window into the truth about reality. Obviously, people can have hallucinations on psychedelics, and these are often taken to be untrue and not real. But... Also, many people report kind of that they have a feeling that they're seeing things that are truer than true and that they are seeing fundamental reality on psychedelics. So there is an interesting philosophical debate there and some of the neuroscience and some of the philosophy can kind of back up the idea that psychedelics might offer a window into fundamental reality. Sounds fascinating, Ricky. If only there were an article that surmised all these points really well. Funny you say that, Ben. I actually did write an article called Psychedelic Experience Isn't Just Brain Chemistry on the IAI website, so do check that out if you're interested. Shameless self-promotion there, but do enjoy this debate. Before we do get into it, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos and articles from the world's leading thinkers. Let's now hand over to our host for this debate, Mark Salter. Good afternoon. Good evening. Welcome to Truth, Delusion and Psychedelic Reality. Psychedelics are back in the cultural zeitgeist again, but this time as a treatment for mental health. Critics, though, argue that Psychedelics only really work by replacing mental illness with a, a distorted view of reality. Now, is this a mistake? A study from Imperial College London, that we'll hear more about this later, suggests that after taking psychedelics, people will get better at actually managing future life events. Visual and general sensory acuity is also known to increase, suggesting that people become less delusional, not more, when taking psychedelics. So... Should we see the psychedelic experience as showing something true about the nature of reality? Or is it perhaps a delusion? Do hallucinations give insights into metaphysical and spiritual truths? Or do they rather encourage a plethora of alternative and contradictory perceptions? Are psychedelics the key to a new era of mental well-being? Or will they put thousands of patients into a state of, well, dangerous delusion? Who knows? Well... 
with me is uh, three people who are in a very good position to answer some of these questions, and uh, I'll just briefly introduce them to you first of all. On, on my uh, immediate left is Eileen Hall. Eileen is a creative director and an artist. She's the founder of uh, the Teos, which is an organisation which is supporting the um, endangered habitats in Ecuador, and she has a special interest in the role of psychedelics. On my extreme left is, is Julian, and Julian Bagini is a philosopher, a writer, a journalist, and author of many books, uh, including The Great Guide, What David Hume Can Tell Us About Being Human and Living Well. And then on my right, we have a psychiatrist, uh, James Rucker, and James is leading the Psychedelic Trials Group at the Centre for Effective Disorders at the Institute of Psychiatry in South London. So the question I'd like to put to all three of you, Eileen first, is this. Should we see the psychedelic experience as showing us something true about the nature of reality, or is it a delusion? Um, okay, so I'm going to start just by dividing reality into the, the material reality that we all feel and sense and can quantify, and science has got quite good at measuring. But also the second part to this reality is what I call the, the sea of consciousness, the place where our feelings our thoughts, our memories, our dreams lie. And it's this very nebulous thing that's actually hard to grasp sometimes, hard to quantify. We now know that some of our memories, we don't even remember things properly a lot of the time, according to some studies. And so we have this kind of like two oscillating parts of what makes up this reality. And so psychedelics become this really interesting tool that allows us to kind of go into this area, which is the sea of consciousness, and explore further what that means and how it affects, in turn, this material reality that, that we're all in. So it's kind of like, I see psychedelics as, you know, diving equipment to go into the ocean, for example. So we get a kind of limited view of the sea according to how much we can explore it. And then now we've got these tools that allow us to go further into this expansive uh, place of consciousness. Now, the second thing I'd like to add to this question is, um, is from an indigenous perspective. So uh, my father was an explorer of ancient cultures and treasures in South America and specifically Ecuador where I was born. And through his work, I got involved with uh, different indigenous communities that have survived in terrains like jungles and mountains for hundreds of years, uh, using mind-altering substances mainly derived from plants. Now, they have been using these substances to enter what they would call a dream or spirit world from which they gather information that's useful to the tribe. So to help the tribe uh, find food or water, to help them navigate collective decisions around where to go or where to live. And uh, also really interestingly, how to heal their bodies or diseases or things that they're suffering from. So um, I like to turn to these cultures because they've been using these substances for so long and have quite a compre comprehensive cosmology and also a social structure within which they use these very powerful compounds. So the tribe that I work with, particularly the Shuar, uh, use uh, 
ayahuasca, they use tobacco, they use datura and guayusa tea. But the one that a lot of people are interested in is, of course, ayahuasca. So they actually see their spiritual cosmology as something that's very practical. So if you don't get results from it, they don't see it as valuable. And on the flip side of that as well, coming back to the delusion piece, so they have these, um, for shamans, we'll call them for now, medicine people um, who are trained in being able to ingest these mind-altering substances in order to help the tribe. Now, some of them are initiated into their skills to do so by going either into very sick spaces, physical sick spaces, or Meant like delu- what we would call delusional or madness or psychosis sometimes for years. And it's their ability to pull themselves back from the brink of death or the brink of madness that gives them the ability to be able to support others in navigating their own psychological space. So I'd like to just throw that in as a kind of basis from which I like to um, study these uh, some substances. Thank you very much. Julian. Well, I, th- I think that the, the sort of current resurgence and in interest in, in psychedelics, I think we've got to use sort of pick apart different aspects from it. So there's increasing evidence that it can be used in certain ways as in therapeutic forms. And I think there's good evidence. That's very uh, fertile research, although one shouldn't get overexcited about this. It's not a panacea. It's not like we're all going to be um, cured of all our uh, things if we just go on a couple of trips. There's a lot more control to involve than that, if one would agree. So, so that that's that that's that's one thing. The interest, and as as far as you know, what goes on in indigenous cultures, I think I don't really want to speak about that because I don't know enough about all of this to pronounce on it. But if we talk about how these um, hallucin- uh, psychedelics have been used, you know, by Western subjects, with experimenters, all that kind of stuff, the idea that it is somehow a window into reality and able to see beyond appearances. I don't see that at all. I haven't heard a single thing from someone who's taken those drugs, which has been remotely revelatory. People have very strong feelings. So, for example, a common thing is people say it gets them to recognise there's no such thing as the self in any kind of, like, a, a unified way. Well, you know, I've never taken a psychedelic. I agree with that. I, I just study David Hume and, and neuroscience, and I know that. And uh, the idea that it has some kind of, like, ethical benefit rather dubious to me i think that i I kind of think that much as these experiences tend to be mind expanding for people who have them they're very mind numbing for people have to listen to them and for all for all that people talk about having become less egotistical etc you know actually if anything i think the correlation's a bit the other way people become very very self-absorbed and very they feel superior enlightened as because of this i don't really see the evidence for that so um setting aside how these function in very traditional systems in indigenous countries, which I'm really not qualified to say, I'm, I'm yet to be persuaded that there's, there's, that this has really generated any kind of insight into a new reality, uh, certainly for, for Western subjects dabbling, no more so than perhaps the good old-fashioned uh, vino. <laughs> which you are sampling. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. James. Um, I agree. Um, there's, far, there's far too much magic ascribed to psychedelics. I want to talk a little bit about the title, and I want to go from delusion to truth to psychedelics. Um, I was listening to Eileen, and I was thinking, what need did that culture have of delusion? Presumably none. Um, so why do we need a concept of delusion? Um, what is a delusion? 
in psychiatric terms, it's a fixed, false, unshakable belief that, um, from our perception, is clearly false. Um, but I often listen to people who may or not, may not be deluded and think, who am I to judge that? So why do we need a concept of a delusion? Well, in my mind, perhaps it's to create a form of solidity to our own form of truth. So if you like, it's a sort of denial of what we find ununderstandable um, in favour of our own version of reality. But who are we to say? Perhaps there is no objective truth, or at least no objective truth that we can work out here. So what do psychedelics have to say about that? Um, well, going back to the neuroscience of them, they stimulate this form of uh, serotonin receptor called 2A. Um, that sits up here in your cortex, the bit that makes you abstract and think, um, and sort of form conceptions of reality, expectations of reality. Um, and the drugs are fascinating because they stimulate this receptor in an unusual way. And when they stimulate it in this unusual way, it changes the phase and timing of the neurons that are associated with that, with that receptor. So all neurons are connected together. So if you change the phase and timing of one type of neuron, you can imagine this sort of cascade of effects that it has throughout the brain. And that is presumably why, what the psychedelic state is. So the brain is in this sort of um, battle against entropy or disorder in order to make your reality and to make it as precise as possible. But it can only make it as precise as energy and time allow. But with psychedelics, you introduce disorder into the system. And what that, what that means is, is in normal waking consciousness, you have access to brain states that you would not otherwise have access to. What those brain states are, who can say, because it's dependent very much on your own mind and the setting within which you experience a psychedelic, but the point is that you are able to experience that which you would not normally be able to experience when you're conscious. And so some people in our trials um, speak of it being like a waking dream. But what's different is, unlike a dream, you can remember it and you know it's happening. And so you can make use of it afterwards. So connecting that to truth and delusion, there's something about expanding the repertoire of conscious states that people are able to experience that challenges this notion of solid truth that our society seems to require. But I wonder whether that increasingly precise requirement of a certain model of reality actually underpins some of the mental health problems that we see running through society, neurotic disorders in particular depression, anxiety, obsessions, alcoholism, all those sorts of things. That's what I want to say as an introduction to this. It's kind of my, my view of what psychedelics are doing. Whether or not they are therapeutic is a much more complex question. Whether or not they are treatments is a much more complex question. But maybe we can unpack some of that. James, thank you very much. That's very, very concise. Thank you. Um, let's broaden this out then. And only if I could start with you. Let, before we go into dive into psychedelics, let's dive into the meaning of the concept of reality as it actually is. We, we've heard different versions of that, but put it this way, is our everyday experience a true picture of reality? If I could start with you. I mean, that's a big question. Um, <clears throat> I fundamentally believe that reality can never be untrue to itself, so any way that we experience it is 
the truth of it. So right now I'm cold, that's true. And I'm experiencing you guys, that's also true. And so I, like I said, number one, I think reality is always just very honest. It's either angry, sad, or whatever you want to call it. I'm an artist, so I come at it. I come at everything as texture and color. So I don't, I don't sit too well with either truth or uh, yes or no things because I, I fundamentally experience the world as texture and color. So because I've personally been, ex I've been dreaming since I was little. So these cultures that I work with use dreams heavily. And I think dreams are a good way to bridge into psychedelics because they're not too dissimilar in certain insights. I've been dreaming since I was little. So for me, um, I've always had this very active visual uh, part and emotional part of my reality. And so the only way I can describe it is that a lot of some of us are kind of basking in the shoreline of the ocean. And because of the way that we understand the truth of reality to be, we are kind of seeing the shore and we're basking in the shore. There's a whole ocean in, in to, to explore filled with whales, with dolphins, with creatures. Um, but a, a lot of us don't think that's either, we, we have no sense that we can go there or it's possible because we haven't seen it or experienced it. And so, um, yeah, I think that some of us are maybe living on that shoreline. And, and I want to talk specifically about the spectrum of consciousness, of awareness, of perception, whatever you want to call it. Again, indigenous people will call it the spirit world, the dream world. That's also our terms, our Western terms for it. We have now got a plethora of mental health disorders. These cultures don't really have such a thing because they're kind of happy with their cosmology and they have this deep connection to themselves, to nature and their relationships. So they don't even have these mental health issues that we have here. And they seem to only get them when they have money and alcohol introduced or various things like that. So I do want to keep bringing it back to that because when you have these kind of healthy relational spaces where we're acknowledging and witnessing one another and validating our sense of reality instead of constantly fragmenting it and picking it apart, which is I feel is one of the shadow parts of the Western mind. And I'm from both cultures and I've been I trained in architecture, so I trained in making things stand up in a very, very much from an engineering point of view. But there's there's the absolute limits to that model. And I feel that what's really interesting about the science of psychedelics is the amount of scientists, even atheists that have gone into these studies and are really questioning if that if this material reality is 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 all that we have to play with. And so I get really excited about these substances coming in and kind of kind of really shaking us up in that sense. And because a lot of them are studying these mystical experiences, it opens up the question of like, what is a mystical, what is the spirit world that we're talking about? Julian, and what's the, as you say, the more philosophical take on what we've just heard? Well, I wouldn't say more philosophical. I mean, I want to know a question that is more, more philosophical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, well... <laughs> Look, I think you've got an easy sort of win if you kind of present uh, a kind of Western mainstream view as being that the material world, as studied by science, is what the world really is. It's straightforward. There's nothing else. But, I mean, not many people really kind of believe that, right? I mean, we all of us know that the way the world appears to us is, is mediated by the senses. It needn't necessarily appear the way it is, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think you can get away from a view which is, gets called structural realism these days, right? So the idea here is that, yeah, we can experience the world in lots of different ways and let's not get 
let's not fall into the trap of thinking that the way it appears to us is the only way it could be, etc. But for something to be truthful, there's got to be some systematic mapping of the way we perceive the world onto the way it is. And I think in the ordinary life, it is. The reason you can be here to be at this talk at this time is because there is a reliable correspondence between your perception of time, your perception of space and so forth, and the way the world really is. If it wasn't, you'd all end up in different places and no one would be hearing the same thing, right? Now, I think the point is that lots there are lots of ways of altering our experience, right? And in some sense, they're all truthful in a way. If I'm seeing a pink elephant, I'm seeing a pink elephant, right? That experience is real. But that's not, it can't be seen as corresponding onto reality in the same way. So I think that, so, so, so I should be going to the same thing, but from the real world point of view, yes, in, in normal life, there is a, a, a relatively reliable mapping from the way we see the world onto the way the world is. And if we're going to ask the question of whether other ways of perception are also equally real or more real, I think we have to explain how it is they achieve an equally successful mapping, right? And, and the, being mind-blowing isn't a good enough reason to think they do that. Fair enough. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month. And there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. So at the end, at the basis of this reality notion, then there seems to be some sort of, shall we, dare I say, core biological solidity onto which we, we, we thrust our particular cultural perceptions. But James, I heard you use this idea that we seem to require solid truth in the West. And you seemed a little bit hesitant about the validity of that solidity. Is, is, and that fit with what we've heard? I just think that as societies develop, they accumulate structures of knowledge um, that feel more and more solid in a way. Um, and we build upon those it iteratively, but ultimately they are just one form of, of truth, if you like. Could you say um, what you mean by feel solid? Um, they feel true, Yeah, I guess. We use them, we use a sense of them to make our day what it is or to make, give us our sense of who we are. Um, they are the structures by which we understand ourselves, understand others and understand the world around us. Um, but they are just them. Yeah, They're just them but, structures. But, 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 let's come back. You say it's more than just feel true, isn't it? I mean, you're, you're a scientist, you're a researcher. So you distinguish between a well-conducted experiment which demonstrates something and one that is, isn't, right? And that's not just because one feels more true than another, right? I assume. I hope not. <laughs> I hope peer review isn't just, oh, this feels right. Um, so isn't there some kind of, something more than just a convention or a feeling at the bottom of that? Well, yeah, I mean, one would hope, hope so, but it depends what topic you're talking about. Um, and I think when it comes to mental health, um, perhaps the answer is no, and it is very much about how people feel. Um, 
I'm minded, I'm reminded of this quote by Einstein. So it's um, not everything that matters is measurable and not everything um, that is measurable matters. Um, and that so applies uh, to psychiatry and, and, and the development of you know, treatments for, for, for mental health. Um, we define disorders. I don't like the term disorder. I, I heard Eileen use it. I tend to say problem. Um, but they're just conceptions that we have. They're sort of syndromes from observing um, the fact that different people, if you're low in mood, you tend to have sleep problems, that sort of thing. Um, so we create these clusters of labels that we feel are meaningful. Um, and then serendipity discovers some sort of treatment like an antidepressant. So we start doing trials on them to measure them with scales that we've made up. Um, and, and we use that to create this solidity of a mental health problem with a treatment. And empirically and it, derives the... And, and, and apparently it's yeah. empirically derived, is it, uh, but, I, I, but it isn't. <laughs> we, we sat in this hall, or I lived in this room this morning, I spoke to very eminent psychiatrists who are quite clear about the fact that mental illness, a Western concept, definitely exists and is a thing. The word thing was used, yeah, a thing yeah, yeah. word. And here you're saying, fascinatingly, that mental illness as such in cultures way beyond the West, and let's face it, there are more people out of the West than there are in it on the planet, you're saying it's a, a culture-bound thing, this idea of Western. That, that's, that, that, that's, you know, that's, that's challenging stuff for Western psychiatry, certainly. Is that a challenging thing for Western analytical philosophy, do you think? Well, I'm not sure, because I mean, I think, I think I totally agree that a lot of the... There's this kind of um, categorization of, you know, mental illnesses and sort of... Which, you know, have this kind of pseudo specificity but really often they're just sort of symptom clusters and and they're, they're not sort of natural kinds so i think that a lot of philosophers are already kind of suspicious of that kind of uh, way of looking at at mental health i don't think the fact that um these things exist i suppose i would always be a bit skeptical of the idea they simply don't exist at all anywhere outside the west and they only exist here but they, they, i could perfectly believe that they're a lot less prevalent in in smaller scale societies because a lot of these things are the, the products of yeah, for all the obsession about the biological basis, and there's going to be a biological basis to everything because we're biological creatures, right? But it doesn't mean the, the fundamental causes are often, I think, social. And we live in fragmented societies, and I can see them being more difficult. So I, I don't think it's philosophers should have a particular problem mm. with, with this idea, to be honest. Yeah, because it's interesting. You're, you're talking about um, the idea that... Uh, psychedelics, moving on to that subject, are not particularly... You, know, you were impressed by the social interactions you had with people taking psychedelic drugs. And uh, here we are talking about psych social context and social relationships being a very important thing in mental illness. But uh, can we see how psychedelics might you know, bend the notion of social relationships or reality to be therapeutically useful? Yeah. Joe. Well, I, I want to point out something. So... You talked about these old psychiatrists sort of hanging on to their um, solid views of mental illness. Which Wesley, it, it, you know, yeah, 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 exactly. <laughs> when we think about psychiatry, it's only really existed for, what, a bit over 100 years, 120, something like that, um, dreamt up by a few people observing um, people with schizophrenia and manic depression, essentially. Um, and to start off with, no-one had any idea what was going on. Um, and then Freud came along and we started to have this sort of psychoanalytic um, conception of how these things arose and that had a certain power. 
Um, and then LSD came along, which is ironic, really, given what psychedelics do. But LSD came along, and it mimicked some of the symptoms of psychosis. And that, in a certain way, ushered in an era of biology in which, well, this is a chemical interacting with an organ, and it produces these symptoms. Therefore, mental illnesses must be biological things. Um, and all of the modern psychopharmacology that we have really was ushered in by that notion. LSD was developed in 1938, the first antidepressants, antipsychotics, the late 50s. The pendulum in that sense swung towards the biological. Now maybe it's swinging back. And I sort of see psychedelics at this nexus of understanding, really, because you can't conceive of them as biological treatments. You have to consider the context within which they are delivered. And that is psychological and that is social. And that is what a mental health problem is. So they invite us to consider what we're all taught, the psychiatrist, mm. which is this biopsychosocial construct, but which, depending on which era of psychiatry you come from, uh, you may be pro this yeah. or pro that and we're or pro the other. I'm excellent biology, but those other things. Yeah. Yes. Just, just before we come back to that point in a bit more detail, I mean, can I turn to you? I mean, leaving aside psychedelics for a moment, are there people that go crazy in, in Ecuadorian culture? you know, without, never mind the medication and things, who display hallucinations, delusions, thought disorder, running around the street naked, shouting, saying really crazy things, and their mums and dads come to you saying, this is not my daughter, this is not my son. But that's what we see in the West. And I wonder, is, uh, is, is that a phenomenon? Is that it's a phenomenon, a phenomenon everywhere. I just don't see it. it prevalent so I grew up in Ecuador for 10 years and I've been in the UK for 25 years it's a very different animal or the social structure is such a different animal so it's hard to say because Ecuador I mean it's one of its main problems is poverty so yes there's people delusional on the street from the amount of poverty but actually on I'm completely generalizing because they still are, it's kind of a wild country. You're still reliant on nature a lot of the time to survive, not on having food brought to you, not on having all these commodities brought to you. If you don't stick to some kind of communal structure, structure to survive these environments, you're, you're not, you're not going to survive. So that was a lot of Ecuador, but for recent years where it's got more modernized. So but they seem to have got this just solid sense of like, I didn't know what individuality is until I came here, for example. I grew up in a family where I had no sense of individual space, but I was emotionally supported to the point that I didn't, again, I didn't have these, a lot of these issues. It's not like the, the country doesn't have them. Um, I would say a lot of the mestizo culture, so the mixed culture, suffering from the same ailments as the West. It's interesting to study uncontacted tribes of the Amazon who were quite happy in their societal structure until uh, money got brought in, roads got brought in, TV got in. It, there's so many studies looking at the mental health effects that were, then these cultures have started suffering. Uh, once they were uh, no, lo no longer uncontacted, they started touching the, the modern world. Um, again, I refer back to, yeah, just Bruce Parry's work because he went off to the most remote ones to just see that sense of natural happiness and peace that they had from knowing that each other had their back. You just, everyone just has your back. And there's no, and if anyone gets out of order, so if there's an alpha male that 
that I'm a better hunter or I'm better than everyone else. These cultures make sure that doesn't happen. They bring that kind of like ego back down so that there's an egalitarian structure upon which then there's no need to build a career or success and be above the rest because they're, they're aware that they're an ecology that relies on that, that ecology's health to survive these environments. So again, we're not living in jungles. We're not, I, I, I have, you know, I'm not saying we go back to living like indigenous people in that way, but I just think what is it that we can translate from that into this society so that we're not going around in circles and creating more headaches for ourselves. And the last thing I'll add to that is they talk a lot about just being in the heart more. I mean, that's what I experienced in Ecuador. There's this warmth about the culture that is less analytical. You just, you prioritize other people's emotional well-being over being right, actually. Yeah. Julian. Yeah, yeah. I mean, things I have to pick up on there. I mean, I'm not saying Eileen's doing this, but what I want to be very careful about is that we don't fall between the two extremes of either like, you know, the thing of thinking about these indigenous people as being primitive, backwards, et cetera, et cetera, nor the romanticizing, right? Uh, I think it's important to, to, to see if what it is. Now, I think that there are all sorts of things that problems are introduced when small scale societies, let's just talk about it in that sense, because that's, that's what the real key is. It's not whether they're indigenous or ancientists that they're, they're very small-scale societies still uh, get brought into sort of more westernized ways of of, of living there are the mental health problems and the physical health problems there's a dietary transition it's a well-known phenomenon people eat very happily on their traditional diets they start eat they start getting stuff delivered and and they and their health goes downhill etc etc there are lots of things that are bad about that but i think what we've got to bear in mind here is that that all those goods are to do with having a very homogeneous and stable and, and, and continuous society. And the price we pay for our lives is the benefits we get are we have more individual freedom to go our own way. We have access to all sorts of things. We can be Bruce Parry going to visit lots of these things rather than being someone who's only ever there. And I think what's interesting, this is where it gets more complicated about whether people are happy or not. Whether people are happy or not is one thing. What would people choose? What do people choose to be as the best, better lifestyle? Now, for people who uh, grew up in, in that kind of community, um, the vast majority, I think, are happy there. Some will choose to go and do this Western lifestyle. It's very, very rare for someone who has experienced the diversity and choice and opportunities of the more Western lifestyle to, you know, to, to go and say, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to give it all up. I'm going to live all my time in one of these small societies. Bruce Parry, actually, before you mentioned him, he came to mind. I, I got it. Yeah. Nice guy and all that, but yeah, I've seen these documentaries that at the end he goes, oh, I've so loved my time here. I'm so sad I've got to go. I think you don't have to go, stay. <laughs> he doesn't, he doesn't, because although he can see that in lots of ways life is happier there, he, he will never want to give up that opportunity to taste different cultures and have that diversity. So that's a point, but going back to the psychedelics thing, I think one of the things you say, what can we learn? And I don't know if you agree, because you're the experts on psychedelics, not me here. I think one thing we, we perhaps can learn is how important it is that whatever the mind-altering substances that are used in the culture, that the context in which they are used is really important. So if you take this alcohol, for example, alcohol, it can be extremely destructive in our society, and partly that's because there are elements, it carries risks anyway, the nature of the substance. But when people are drinking 
in, in company and they've got the support and all that kind of stuff, a lot of the less safe behaviours, uh, yeah, the less safe stuff doesn't happen. A lot of problems with alcohol to do with the fact that people are drinking it privately, um, unconstrained, no limits, et cetera, et cetera. Or also culturally, in certain groups, it's associated with violence, which isn't, doesn't necessarily lead to violence. It's only certain cultures. So I think if there's really one, you know, rather than thinking, are oh, psychedelics great, should we all be taking them? And, you know, feel free to, to have a go if you want. I think one of the most important things we're learning from all this research is how important it is to make sure that all this substance taking is done in the right context so it becomes beneficial and not in the wrong context where, you know, you end up sort of like getting pissed at a fight, getting depressed at home uh, or, you know, or having a really bad trip, for example, because it's not in the right context. I don't know if you two, I mean, I'd like yeah. to know what you two think of that because you're the well, experts on this. Yeah, well, that brings up the concept of regulation and, and, and how drugs are regulated. Um, I think the criminalization of end users that we've seen for the past 50 years is utterly horrific. I see the product of that every day. But on the other hand, um, I do think drugs need to be regulated to prevent the sort of thing that you're talking about. So the question is, what is the right context? And that changes for whatever drug you're talking about, because they all have different effects. Um, for psychedelics, there are some people who think that everyone should take them. But look how that turned out, you know, in the 60s. Um, that was a sort of free experiment, if you like, of unregulated psychedelic use. Um, and it didn't end very well. Well, I mean, it ended with the punitive restrictions we have today. So you, could you say it didn't turn out very well? Could you say more about how it turned out wrong? Well, I mean, the history is so complicated, but psychedelics essentially were swept up in Nixon's war on drugs. Um, that arose from, you know, essentially the relaxation of alcohol prohibition back in the uh, 50 years before. But the point was that psychedelic drugs were used by people who were against the Vietnam War, as was cannabis. And so they were made Schedule One substances, and that just gave um, legal sanction for the pillory of those, um, those people and of, that, um, of, and of those drugs. It's fascinating because after that, all this scientific research came out about LSD, about how it caused, um, it was teratogenic, it caused deformed babies, it was directly toxic to DNA. Absolute nonsense. Um, but it came out because um, psychedelics were being politically demonized and because um, research tends to follow social trends. Um, clinical trials didn't exist in the way they did back in the 60s. Neither did the legal structures that allow us to actually say to governments, we want to do a research with a psychedelic, will you let us? And of course, hitherto, you know, before like 2000, they just say no, but now they say yes. Why is that happening? Not sure. Uh, lots of different aspects to that. But um, the point is it allows us to do a form of research in a way that governments and wider the wider public understand and can engage with that may need to may lead to regulatory change or legal change to the designation of those drugs. And if that happens, a whole new vista of interesting opportunity in research um, comes up. And essentially what it is, 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 is lengthening the leash a bit on psychedelic drugs, but still allowing a form of regulation. I think that's probably quite 
good thing, but I'm rather sort of conservative. Um, others would disagree. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing yeah. it from a Western context. Yeah, a, yeah, but I want to come back to this, con the, yeah, the, the actual study of the drug and the psychological context. But here we are in the West, humbly, I hope, asking whether we might be able to use some of those scientific ideas that would to chime with the some ideas that you're embracing about culture. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, could you imagine a place with for James's kind of research with an Ecuadorian framework, for example. <clears throat> yeah, I would say absolutely. And I also do agree with a lot of points that Julian made around the right context within where everything is contextual. Again, I come from architecture. It, good architecture responds to context. That's what it does. It has to face the sun uh, for the light. It has to take care of the water and, and the topography. So you have to look at each situation and its context. So. I absolutely agree that the clinical research and some of its findings are bringing out some useful things that, that we can bring to the table, such as set and setting. So this is like psychedelics one-on-one, -on -one. make sure you feel safe, make sure you have someone that can guide you that feels safe, make sure you know what drug you're taking, how much you're supposed to do, and have your intention set really clearly. Now, again, this comes, again, indigenous cultures don't do it without intention and without the right set and setting. They just don't. These things are like electricity. You could like use it to light your homes or like blow up all sorts of things. So we have to, I really believe in their careful use and actually in their limited use. I really want people to not overuse them at all, ever, none of them. <laughs> I'm not someone that's gonna come and say, yeah, try them all you know, gobble them all up and eat, you know, here's a menu and just eat everything you want because they, they are very powerful and they've been giving us some amazing wisdom and insights. But, um, but yeah, we have to get educated. We have to learn about what the dangers of it. It's like technology. We're like, woo, technology, computers, yay. And then all of a sudden we've got kids are struggling with technology so badly. So Let's like slow down. Let's have these debates. You know, I come from both cultures and I love, I do love Western philosophy in many ways because it's just, it's clean. It's kind of, it likes to dissect and surgery has saved a number of members of my family and that has come from the West. So I actually, what I've experienced as a kind of observer of, I'm friends with a lot of, a few of the psychedelic scientists, um, especially in the UK and, and the US, um, what I've observed is a real embrace of life as a psychedelic, really, like embracing all parts of life and to try and, and build a, a kind of Western cosmology of how this can be useful. But I really think, and, and one of the people whose work I really follow, Rob Dickens, he comes back to creating a domestic spiritual model, if, we, if I'm allowed to use that word, word spiritual, um, bringing it localized, because again, yeah, the, the knowledge that these indigenous cultures bring is because they're small groups, you know, and they don't have the complexity that we have. So his idea is like, okay, yeah, do this, but within your local context. Don't try and globalize this all the time, because then you're taking things out of context and like, uh, you know, creating, you know, kind of franchise for psychedelics. We don't want, fran you know, franchise of psychedelics. Mm -hmm. It's like, how can we contain... How can we really uh, value the nuance, the wisdom? Um, I really feel they're very good at helping us discern the signal from the noise and shake us up out of our very, sometimes stuck ways of thinking, which, 
can be done with meditation, breathwork, philosophy, the right teacher, the right mentor. They are not the only way to access wisdom, insight, intuition. But what is actually quite brilliant about them is that they help you feel your body really viscerally. And, they ha and, it, and when you're on them, you feel like the dream world's literally seeping out of you. And so that as an experience in itself, that kind of gnosis by experience is really quite valuable. And, you know, people that have gone through these studies have labeled their psychedelic experience as one of the most significant things that they've ever done in their life compared to childbirth, compared to death. Last thing I'll add is that some of these psychedelic scientists, I mean, have branched out into very interesting spaces. So Mendel, as a musician, as a music man, is now uh, championing the power of music and to bring people together. My friend Catherine, who did the uh, Johns Hopkins studies, is now championing our literacy around death. So she really wants us to look at how death affects us and how psychedelics can help us cope with end-of-life anxiety. Ross Watts from Imperial has left her position there and is now creating an integration model based upon trees and how we can reforest and how can we use the wisdom of trees in order to uh, reconnect to nature. So, um, yeah, I think what I like about the field is that it opens up these larger life questions and because the experience is so powerful, as opposed to just talk therapy, which I've done and it's so limited, it really shakes people up and it turns them on in a way that I don't feel um, talk therapy does as well. Killian, do you have any points on that? Well, not a lot to add, really. I mean, I think it's usually, I mean, Rosalind Watts actually um, did write that piece wired people who may have um, read a lot which is quite interesting because she was very much saying that interesting and fruitful though this stuff is she'd become less convinced that the real key factor was the psychedelic element and she thought the whole process is much more important and I think this perhaps suggests why she, she's moved on so I think it's, it's, it just really, really reinforces the point that you know the, the, these are kind of ways into other yeah. things it's, it's not it's not we shouldn't get hung up on the on the chemicals um, themselves, but I think I just, I just, I think I've got enough to say yeah, there. Yeah, I, mean, I, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Um, we've fetishized drugs. Mm. Uh, yeah, we're back to this, 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 this obsession of biology. Well, yeah, well, yeah, but they're, they're both simple solutions to complex problems, but also explanations for things. Mm. Um, but they aren't in, in many but, ways. Can I pick up on something? Another thing you've said, it's intriguing what you're saying, it's opening up so many lines of inquiry here, but you've come to the idea that the, hit, the, the hallucinogenic drugs switch on awareness of the body in a different way. And one of the things I think we're learning in psychotherapy and psychiatry of the modern world is that the body is so goddamn important. Descartes thought it was a machine. Yeah. <laughs> and it clearly isn't. I mean, I think. Do you, does your research take us into this idea of the body into the body through acid to get to get well yeah i mean well when we give people psychedelics in the clinical trial we don't talk um you know the idea is they go into themselves and they see what's there and we encourage an introspection into what is it what is there apart from thought you know what sensations are arising in your body because people become so cut off from that in in, in a state of depression can I just pick you up on that? I'm, I'm fascinated by what you actually do in these sessions. I mean, could you describe... Not very much. I mean, hey, what, <laughs> OK, well, first of all, what sort of patients, if I may use that word, um, or do you choose to try... I mean, well, do you just... Choose us. Anybody who's unaware or...? They choose us, and there is a form of selection bias before you start, but it was ever thus in clinical trials. 
you can't force people to be part of a clinical trial um, and we can't ethically expose very ill or vulnerable people to what are experimental treatments, essentially. So it's a slightly rarefied sample that goes into mm -hmm. a clinical trial. I would say for a clinical trial with psychedelics, they're quite different to people who are going to a standard drug trial. They tend to be a bit anti-pharma, a bit anti-society, um, but pro-natural alternative remedies, yet they would not be the sort of people to go off into the forest and pick magic mushrooms Press, and take them. anxious, hallucinating? I mean, what sort of things would you be seeking to treat? All oh, right, right. Well, our trials are in um, depression, post-traumatic stress disorder and alcoholism at the moment. And then we're setting up one in anorexia uh, as well. Um, all of which may be explicable by tightly held maladaptive behavioral patterns of thought and feeling and behavior, as opposed to psychosis where you know, things just seem to get more chaotic. Too much solidity. Yeah. Exactly. So here we are talking about dissolving solidity and it seems to be quite an important way forward. Well, but to pick up on what you said about the body thing, I think this is, an, this is an important thing. I think it is true that Western philosophy for, for most of its history has kind of like imagined the mind as being this sort of separate thing. The body is merely the vessel. But that, that is already changing as well. And I think this is interesting when you're talking about, you know, how important the actual drugs are to this. So... For example, if you take you know classical Indian philosophy, in classical Indian philosophy, there's a very there's not a, there's not a strong tradition, I believe, of mind altering drugs or anything, but there's a very strong tradition of bodily practices. So there, you know, the, the means by which people become more attuned to their body, prepare themselves are by you know practices of meditation and so forth. So what what is quite interesting is that if you look at virtually every sort of non Western tradition, there are practices which are sort of have some kind of purpose of getting people to kind of um, what can you say, become more aware of their bodily states and how they can be transformed and bring about a transformation of, of consciousness by a transformation of the body. Not all of them use hallucinogenic drugs. Some of them just use uh, practices of breathing and focus and so forth. Interesting. Well, I mean, we talked for hours about this, I'm sure, but uh, we're out of time. So uh, Eileen Hall, James Riker and Julian Bettini, thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe on your platform of choice and visit iai.tv for hundreds more podcasts, videos, articles and more from the world's leading thinkers.